you must have studied this shit in school big time. Like big there, time. there must have been yeah. this whole freaking crazy set of units on like the Spanish flu and the pandemic and the pandemics of the future and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the key word in epidemiologist is epidemic. Um, I, I think about an epidemic like a fire. You know, if you've got a, if you've got a toaster fire, you know you need to put it out. And if you can't put it out in the toaster, it's going to take over the house. And if you don't put it out in the house, it's going to take over the neighborhood. But imagine all of the stuff we do to prevent fires, right? We've got fire alarms in our houses. We've got fire stations in our neighborhoods. Imagine you were to take the batteries out of the fire alarm. You were to furlough the entire firefighting staff. What do you think is going to happen when the toaster catches fire? And this is exactly where we were. And so we have created a society where not only did we actively shut down the capacity to respond in real time and put out outbreaks when they were small, but we've also, as you talked quite a bit about, we've created a society where people were left exceedingly vulnerable to the economic, social, political consequences of something like this happening. And so we were not prepared. We were not ready. And it's devastating. In this episode of Yang Speaks, I'm going to sit down with the former professor of epidemiology, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Abdul, really brilliant guy, ran for governor of Michigan, uh, and he and I have become friendly through CNN. And also, it turns out that he and my brother uh, were at Columbia together. And, you know, it was funny is that he put two and two together that I was... Uh, my brother's brother, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Yang is a pretty ubiquitous name. If you run into some Yang, you'd be like, hey, is that Andrew Yang's cousin? Uh, so sit down with <laughs> with Dr. Abdul El-Sayed to talk about our healthcare system in a time of COVID uh, and what we, are, we could or should be doing. Uh, there are a couple of things that this week I think we're all sensing. Uh, you're seeing... COVID rates surge in 32 states, 36 states, depending upon the day. And the the numbers are staggering. There is some confusion around the fatality rates where people say, look, you're seeing massive spikes in infection rates, but fewer people as a percentage are dying. And some people are using that as like a positive data point. Um, But there are two reasons to doubt that lower mortality. Number one is there's a lag between infection and mortality by the way that this virus works, uh, that there are several weeks of someone losing their lung capacity and then ending up on a ventilator if you have a ventilator. And so the death rates will be a lagging indicator behind the infection rates. And number two, because this virus is spreading through a broader swath of the population, you're seeing many more young people test positive and young people have lower mortality rates because they have lower levels of pre-existing conditions. So unfortunately, there's nothing good in my mind going on uh, that it's not like, oh, coronavirus is somehow getting less lethal. Like really the thing to pay attention to is the top line, which is that it's now ripping through Texas, Arizona, Florida. Uh, and it, it breaks my heart and infuriates me when I think about this because at this point, we're all going to be stuck with community mitigation essentially, where we're all just going to be looking around saying, okay, social distance, wear a mask, wash my hands, avoid indoor gatherings, uh, don't go to gyms, don't go to bars, don't go to restaurants. 
And, and that's what uh, we individually will do. But collectively as a country, uh, the genie's out of the bottle. And in this case, the genie is that like terrible, destructive genie uh, where it's wreaking havoc, taking lives, uh, destroying ways of life. Uh, we're going to be at this for, to, to me, the indefinite future until a vaccine arrives. And the vaccine was going to arrive, who knows, I mean, months at best. You had a tweet the other day, Andrew, that I loved, and I was trying to pull it up real quick. Uh, here it is. We missed the window to test and trace. We missed the window to suppress and contain. Now we're faced with a terrible situation that will worsen through the summer and fall without dramatic action. Action that may no longer even be possible. What a disaster. And you're right. And somehow in this process, we've also managed to politicize it because it seems to me that the only objective thing that actually stops the spread, besides, I guess, avoiding large crowds, is wearing a freaking mask. And apparently, that's an infringement upon people's rights. So the government is allowed to force people to wear pants in public, but if they enforce a mask, that's an infringement on your rights. And it's driving me nuts, Andrew, because people can't wear a freaking mask, and now we have to keep suffering through this. And I don't know what your thoughts are on how we've made this a political issue, despite we all don't want to die from the damn thing. Politicizing mask wearing is such a an immoral disaster. No, it's like the virus doesn't care about your politics. It's just trying to get from yep. person to person. Wearing a mask is considerate to others. Like not wearing a mask is just being an irrational asshole who doesn't care about other people. I mean, who the heck mm -hmm. wants that for themselves or for someone around them? I mean, I, I get it. It's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. Like, oh, it you does know, suck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but who gives a shit? I mean, really, yeah. it's like Corona you know, sucks you know, worse. There, oh, there, there was a supporter who who said something online that broke my heart. Where uh, apparently someone gave their parent, and the parent died, and then the, the young person, and in this case, like the, this posting, like the young person, like attended a pool party and like came back, and apparently, mm, yeah. it was not a good pool party. Let's put it that way. And, and, and you know, this is one of the things too. I, I want to suggest as well. It's okay to go outside. It's okay to try and do something that you enjoy. Just stay the fuck away from someone else. Like, it's conceivable that you can have a pool party that is perfectly responsible if, for example, the only people at that party are, you know, the people who, like, live in a, like, a particular area where they've essentially just interacted with each other. You know what I mean? Like, like if right. you have a pool party with your neighbor... Right. And your neighbor's family and your family interact all the time and no one goes anywhere, then that's fine. Uh, you know, yeah. so so it, it's not like like there are things that you can do that are responsible. Things are better outdoors than in. Really, to me, like the activities that are completely irresponsible are not wearing a mask in public where you're forced to be around people. Indoor gatherings, bars, restaurants, house parties where, you know, like the, the people are not essentially folks that you're in essence right, right. cohabitating with. And what is frustrating is like, there are plenty of people following the rules. And if we all follow the rules, we would slowly be able to reopen the economy. But we have a subset of people that, and politicians and leaders <laughs> that seem to think the rules don't matter or they're fake news or they're propaganda. Um, and so the rest of us following the rules have to keep following the rules. Um, 
without the, I mean, compared to what other countries are doing, they're slowly opening back up. The United States, we're literally going the opposite direction. We're, we're not like, it's not like we're flat. It's not like we're a little slower. We're going the wrong way. It's the so curves are the most infuriating because you see in other countries, they got under control and then now they're able to reopen. And for us, it's an extension of the first wave and it's growing out of control. Uh, and this is before you wind up with colder weather and a potential flu season uh, right. in the fall. You know, as a parent, we're trying to figure out, like, are schools supposed to reopen? Uh, I believe Harvard just announced that all of their classes will be online. Uh, a lot of international students are being told, like, don't come back to the States if you're if you're in school, which is very, very disruptive and problematic. I mean, if I'm those students, I'm not sure I want to come back here anyway, because the odds are your home country has much lower infection rates than the United States of America. Like Europe banned travelers from the US and I don't blame them. You know, it's like if you were Europe, would you let Americans in? Uh, so so we are now this uh, hotbed for COVID globally in a way that people could never have predicted given that we are theoretically the richest, most advanced country in the world. And Harvard apparently is gonna charge the same amount of tuition, which is also madness. Like isn't half of going to college is the people you meet and the network you develop, particularly going to Harvard. Half of going to Harvard is the network and frankly, interacting and studying and drinking and creating projects and businesses and ideas with those people. If you're going to do it online, it should not be the same price. That's insane. Um, and Harvard can do it because they can get away with it because they're freaking Harvard. And that's really frustrating. So, Andrew, it seems to me that the only good thing that's come out of COVID right now is that it's clearly demonstrating the need for universal healthcare, right? In the sense that we have a system now where like, healthcare is tied to employment, yet half the country has lost their job and can't even afford a COVID test, theoretically. And we're providing universal testing in some way. One of the things that the coronavirus has laid bare is that we need to overhaul our healthcare system in this country. Having healthcare attached to jobs makes no sense when no one has a job, uh, no one has any money. You know, like this is such a clear call to action that we need to have some version of Medicare for all or public health care. Uh, I personally was a fan of Medicare for all. Uh, I think that we need to just have health care as a right of citizenship in this country. Uh, it's clearer now than ever. And we also need to listen to scientists more. And we are thrilled to be able to sit down with a scientist who ran for office who's world-class in epidemiology, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. He's a professor of epidemiology at Columbia, big proponent of Medicare for All and the fact that we need to revamp our healthcare system. He ran the Detroit Department of Health, ran for governor of Michigan, brilliant, brilliant guy, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Abdul, it is so good to see you, man. Uh, you know, we last time we saw each other was in happier times when we were allowed out of the house. And we, we, we were able to go to an actual office building and commune in real life. Uh, but congratulations on the, the new book, Healing Politics. You should be really uh, excited and proud. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's, uh, yeah, no, the last time we got to uh, spend some time, it was we were together in a studio for like eight hours, I think it was. And 
to think, you know, even think about doing that in these times. But yeah, and no, I appreciate you taking a read of the book and I hope that it speaks to the moment that we're in right now because I do think that um, there's a lot that we have to think about about how we were before this as we think about what a new normal ought to be. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So Abdul's a, a former epidemiology professor at Columbia University. So one of the things he's telling us all about is what the heck to expect over the next number of weeks and months. And, and another thing that Abdul and I have in common is my brother was a professor at Columbia the same time he was. It, it boggled my mind. You know what it was? It was one of our former colleagues. And she was like, oh, did you know that that's Andrew Yang's brother? And I was like, wait, what? Uh, that's crazy because um, I remember him being just a, a great colleague and a good friend and somebody I really appreciated and admired. Well, you don't have to say that shit just because he's my brother. No way, man. We could talk trash about him. You could be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, there are some people for whom, you know, talking trash is really easy and some people for whom it's hard. Uh, your brother's not somebody easy to talk trash about. He's actually like, remarkably a really nice guy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he, he is. He, that, that's one reason why it's <laughs> it seems so ridiculous to you and me. Well, you are one of the small group of people, small group of experts that people are turning to to ask what comes next in this coronavirus crisis. I mean, you ran the Department of Health in Detroit yourself. So you've been at the front lines. You've been a, a physician. Obviously, you have an MD, PhD, and your PhD is in epidemiology. Is that right? That's right. So what would you say is like, we've all seen the estimates, like they're saying that the fastest time to develop a vaccine, I believe, was four years uh, for the mumps. Um, now, people are projecting that this could get done in 12 to 18 months. But then there would be massive problems in terms of the manufacture of, let's call it 300 million doses mm -hmm. of the vaccine, and then some issues around distributing. So there are some things we might be able to do prior to the vaccine development. Is that correct? That's right. So, you know, the vaccine gives you the opportunity to basically know that people are immune because you immunize them. And again, the more immune people there are in a society, the less the spread. Um, it's because of the, this thing called herd immunity, where your probability of getting disease is a function of how many people have the disease around you. And if there are more people who are immune, there are less people who have the disease. But that's right. Like the only way to do this safely in the absence of a vaccine is to A, know everybody who is exposed and therefore immune, and B, identify those folks who are not immune and exposed and isolate them from the rest of the society so they're, they're not spreading it. But you got to be able to do that scale, right? And, and we're nowhere near being able to do that at scale because we don't have the personnel and we don't have the testing capacity. I'm with you, man. Like I think about all of the terrible missed opportunities and, and delays and lives that have been destroyed as a result. The whole thing is despicable. It is. And I love hearing from someone like you because you're just science, data, and knowledge. Uh, so would love to ask you what you think people should be bearing in mind right now. Yeah. So, you know, right now, uh, Andrew, we're in the midst of, of mass social distancing. Uh, we missed the opportunity to do what's called contact tracing. And I, I like to call it precision social distancing, where you identify the people who are exposed, get them tested, and then if they have the disease, you isolate them from the rest of society so the rest of society can go on its way. We missed that boat, and so now we've basically put up social roadblocks so that nobody interacts 
with each other to the degree that's possible. But on the way back down, right, once we've sort of gotten through the peak of the curve, we have to be able to move from mass social distancing to precision social distancing so that we don't have another spike and then all of us have to go back into our homes again uh, for mass social distancing. So that really is the next stage. We are unfortunately not on our way there. Uh, what that looks like is you have in every community an army of people who are ready to go to contact everybody who might have been exposed from anybody who has uh, COVID-19. So the minute there is a COVID-19 case, you sit down with that person and say, tell me all of the people with whom you've come in contact over the last 14 days. And it's a whole systematic approach, right? Let's start with yesterday. Where were you yesterday? Who are and, the people you're this, there with? This is the kind of thing that in ideal world we would have been doing back in January and February when people were starting to re-enter the, the country. And I, I want to share an experience. I have family members in Asia. And when they landed in Asia, they were escorted straight to their apartment and said, you're going to stay here for two weeks. Uh, we're then going to put a monitor on your door. <laughs> we're going to have a government employee show up every day and take your temperature and also, by the way, make sure you're still home. And there are real problems if you're not home. Now, I, I sent a, a tweet just factually relaying what they were doing over there. And, you know, I got some reactions being like, well, that could never happen in America. But ideally, that is what we would have been doing to people back in the day in January and February. And you're suggesting that that's what we're going to try and do now for people who have confirmed cases uh, after the curve declines? We, we wouldn't have had to go that hard, right? You, you, we wouldn't have had to necessarily do enforced quarantining just for anybody who gets off a plane. But yeah, for people who are exposed to somebody who has the disease, you got to get them tested. And between when they get tested and when the test results, you've got you've to make sure that they stay home. And so we have to start being able to identify people and then be able to enforce isolation to be able to go to precision social distancing so that we're not all self-isolating at home. I, I think about an epidemic like a fire. Right? I, I just want to stop for a second here, man. Did you like you must have studied this shit in school big time? Like big there, time. there must have been this whole freaking crazy set of units on like the Spanish flu and the pandemic and the pandemics of the future and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the key word in epidemiologist is epidemic. Um, you know, if you've got a if you've got a toaster fire, you know you need to put it out. And if you can't put it out in the toaster, it's going to take over the house. And if you don't put it out in the house, it's going to take over the neighborhood. But imagine all of the stuff we do to prevent fires, right? We've got fire alarms in our houses. We've got fire stations in our neighborhoods. Imagine you were to take the batteries out of the fire alarm. You were to furlough the entire firefighting staff. What do you think is going to happen when the toaster catches fire? And this is exactly where we were. And so we have created a society where not only did we actively shut down the capacity to respond in real time and put out outbreaks when they were small, but we've also, as you talked quite a bit about, we've created a society where people were left exceedingly vulnerable to the economic, social, political consequences of something like this happening. And so we were not prepared. We were not ready. And it's devastating. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. 
Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your Internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. If you had guidance for people who are right now trying to ride out this crisis, something practical, immediate, helpful, uh, what would it be? I'd say, number one, um, just remember that the only way around this is through it. You can't just magically open up the economy again and expect that people are just going to go out because you said it's okay. So long as there's a real risk of transmission of disease and doing that, people are going to avoid it. That's number one. Number two, this is hard. Like this is just really, really, really hard. And I think one of the most important things we can do is try to allay some of the psychological challenge of this by reaching out, engaging with people, trying to find the silver linings in this cloud and and, and, and making sure that for, for us, social distancing doesn't mean social isolation. And then lastly, stay home, right? The, 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 the most important thing we can do as a society is protect each other. And one of the things this is teaching us, something you've talked a lot about in your campaign, 
is that we are all as vulnerable as the most vulnerable of us. We're all as exposed as the most exposed of us. And so we've all got to do our part to eliminate the spread of disease. Every time that virus replicates, that's more virus in the world and a higher probability that we or someone we love is going to get sick. And so being able to find that patience by building the semblance of normal in this moment, I, I think is just really critical. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, to me, the government should be protecting us against events that are very low probability on a particular day, but high probability over time that have high impact, you know, mm -hmm. like this pandemic, something like this has obviously not occurred uh, in our, in our lifetime, but I know in your books, this was eminently predictable. This is something that experts have been trying to warn us about for years. Uh, people have seen it coming. And so you can't know what's going to happen in 2019 and 2020, uh, I certainly, you know, like people have been talking about how my call for universal basic income was ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd be the first to say, look, you know, like I wasn't running around like warning about a pandemic. I was warning about the auto automation of, um, of our jobs. One of the things I've said is that we're going through 10 years worth of change in 10 weeks. In That's the right. economy, in many respects, like the things I was most concerned about are accelerating. And one of the things you just touched on is the mental health crisis we're in the midst of. To me, it's going to end up ha having a disastrous effect on many people's mental health. Already is. Yeah, yeah. The, the use of the crisis text line has already more than doubled as one data point. And the proportion of Asian Americans using the crisis text line shot up from 5%. It's like the percentage of the population Asian mm. Americans are. So it's pretty normal. So it was like 13% last I checked. Terrible. Uh, yeah, so so it, it surged, and this is something that uh, well, I'd love to pick your brain about because you know everything has its own set of circumstances. But reading your book, it was very affecting how you were in high school when nine eleven happened, and you just like were like, oh my gosh, like the the entire perception of Muslim Americans has been changed by this event. Mm -hmm. Now, certainly they're different in many respects. I mean, everything is different, but I I will say that. The closest analog I can think of to the fact that now Asian Americans are perceived as responsible for the virus was in your own experience as a Muslim American post 9-11. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I um, it's, it is devastating to watch as people who are doing nothing but trying to protect themselves and their families from what we're all trying to protect ourselves and our families from are now being hit with the added burden of discrimination simply as a function of what they look like and, and where their families come from. And yeah, I, I remember being a junior in high school when 9-11 happened. And I, you know, I, I, I don't know if you remember, it was the beginning of the school year, right? So um, you're still excited about, about school starting and you're just getting into your groove. And for, for me, you know, it was the first time that I went from being you know, a brown guy with a funny name to being a very particular kind of brown guy with a very particular kind of funny name. And then all of a sudden, right, everybody sort of knew all of the epithets. They knew all of the stereotypes. You know, for our family in particular, my little brother, who's eight years younger than I am, his name is Osama. Oh my gosh. Wait, if you're a junior in high school, that makes you like 16 years old. He's like eight. He was eight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh no. Yeah. That would have been Brutal. Brutal. I'm sure at some point he even thought about like, maybe I should like uh, go by another name. Did he like adopt another nickname? You know, to his credit, my parents asked him, they said, you know, you, you can go by Sam. We'll just start calling you Sam. He said, no, my name is Osama. That's what you named me. And that's my name. And I'm proud of it. 
I was, you know, it was just, it was a, it was a sort of a moment of just being like, you know, that's, uh, that takes a lot for an eight-year-old who's getting bullied left and right. My brother's also kind of like your brother. He's just one of those really, really good, nice people. And his response when he'd get bullied for his name, and of course it still happens, wasn't to lash out, wasn't to hit back. His response almost always was just this like extremely emotionally mature response, which was, you know, when you say that, it really hurts my feelings. And it just diffuses everything, right? People are just, when, when they hear that, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, man. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. And it's just so, I mean, emotionally mature beyond, beyond his years. He said, you know, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of who I am and what my name is, and, and I'm proud of my name. It, it, in Arabic, it means lion-hearted. And, you know, in fact, my parents, uh, my name, my full name is Abdurrahman. It's 11 letters long, and nobody can say it. So I became Abdul before I started preschool uh, because that was, you know, 1989, and Paula Abdul was a thing, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was a thing. And then eight years later, they have my little brother, and they're like, you know, we got to give him an easier name. So let's just do Sam with O on the front and A on the back. And so, like, my parents are O for 2 on uh, boys' names. Um, but yeah, it was, it went from all of a sudden being different to being a very particular kind of different. And you knew exactly what the stereotypes were going to be and how it was going to hit you. And so, you know, my heart goes out to Asian American folks in our communities who have to bear this. And I'm just deeply sorry. And I'll tell you this, whenever and if ever I see it, I want to call it out. And I think all of us should make that commitment to call it out because it's wrong, it's dangerous, and it's hurtful. And it's something we need to always constantly be doing work to root out in our societies. Now, when I think about the people who are affected, for whatever reason, I, I just keep thinking about this Chinese family I met in Iowa where they just ran like the local Chinese buffet. Mm. And they were very, very sweet people. And right now, I'm sure every restaurant in that town is closed. But I, I have this sinking feeling that even after restaurants reopen, that that family's business is going to be worse than it was mm. and that that's going to play out across Chinatowns around the country around uh, you know those like ethnic food marts that I personally love whenever I see like an Asian mm. food market <laughs> you're probably the same way like probably like when you see <laughs> like, like certain certain ethnic food markets where you just run in and it's like ooh and then you get like four or five things from your childhood that remind you of that that's right like I, I have this sinking feeling that all of those businesses are going to suffer uh, because people are just going to not want to go to that restaurant, that Chinatown, that community, that food market. And I, I think it's going to persist. Do you have any tips for folks who are like new to this? You know, I um, you know, I think I think certainly um, people of color in our country have have experienced this for a long time. And also, you know, it's, it's important to call out that COVID-19 has had a disproportionate impact on Black Americans and Native Americans. And so we're seeing structural racism play out um, in, in a number of ways. Yeah, that's happening right in Michigan, right? I think I just saw the stat where African Americans are 13% of the state of Michigan, but 40% of the deaths so far. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, I don't know that that I can share anything that other folks haven't already experienced or thought through. But what I, what I will say is, number one, we all have a choice about where and how we spend our money. And so, if you've got an ethnic grocer in your community who you think is going to be in trouble because of the, I hate to say it, the xenophobia and the discrimination uh, in a community, make sure you go spend your buck out there, right? That's, that's a simple thing that all of us can do. Number two, I think, you know, the impact of this is so much more disproportionate on young people because it frames the way that they think about themselves. And I think one of the most important things that we can do is make sure that we're constantly empowering young people 
who face discrimination on a daily basis and um, reminding them that they're beautiful, that they're meaningful, that they matter, that they have power, and that we are proud of them, right? Because that's where they get their own sense of their pride and their value and their sense of belonging. And then number three, that I, in my life, used to respond to a lot of this by, by hitting back. And I found that just over time that that's... Yeah, just so you know, I don't know if people can see you, Abdul, right now, but uh, Abdul seems like a pugnacious type uh, in terms of like, he, he like played football, I think, in high school and like... Uh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> generally like, certainly I could very easily see like if someone gave you shit in high school, you'd be like, all right, let, let's see. <laughs> I, I hate to say it, it's sometimes my first reaction, um, but it's never my best reaction. Well, I think I think part of it's just like where you are, you know, in terms of your uh, maturation stage. Like, because I can imagine in high school, you would just hit back immediately. Yeah. College, probably same. But I mean, at this point, you're like a dad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you've like you've been like the head of the Department of Health, of the city of Detroit. You, you pretty much have to learn to have a very thick skin at, at some point. <laughs> the, the other thing you start to appreciate is that people who engage in this form of behavior. Oftentimes, they do it because they've given themselves license to try and take away your humanity. And I think, you know, if I learned anything from my little brother is that in that response, when he would say, you know, that hurts my feelings, what he was doing was very, very clearly asserting his humanity. People have feelings, right? And if you're able to, to look at somebody and say, you know, what you said really hurt my feelings, it forces a certain empathy because all of us have had our feelings hurt. And I just think that there is a space to ask, why are you saying what you're saying? And how can I show you that what you're saying, actually, it defiles you just like, it, just like you think it defiles me. And if we can grapple with forcing people to come to terms with the mutual shared humanity that all of us have in this moment, I think we're all the better for it, right? And then the other thing is one of the points that my mom used to always make is that now, at some point, you can only control you. And you can ask yourself, what did you do in that moment to bring out the best in someone? And obviously, when someone's being racist and discriminatory, they're not their best. And you know, some would say, well, you know what? I don't owe them anything. And that's true. You don't. But I think there is always an opportunity to ask, how do I bring my best in a situation? And how do I pull out even the shred of what's, what's good in that person that's left? Like, all right, so I've got an opportunity to engage someone who's not being their best, can I bring my best to bring out their best? Because if you can do that, right, that's the kind of person who truly changes things. That constant ask, it's a hard thing to do. And certainly if you don't, if you choose not to do it, no harm, no foul, I don't blame you. But there is a real opportunity there and that opportunity is worth taking, I think. Uh, that's a beautiful sentiment. And I know that's not just, you know, your brother's example. I mean, like I know you've uh, been a leader and role model one of the things in your story that impressed me the most, there were a lot of very impressive things, but uh, so you're uh, married in New York, you're a professor at Columbia, and then you wound up dropping everything to go back to Detroit to run the Department of Health that at that point was really poorly resourced. Mm. You know, you had to like like go and uh, you had to be uh, apart from your wife. That to me is in many ways the biggest testament to your spirit of service because you and I know a lot of people who came through the meritocracy and had like the opportunity to teach it at Ivy League universities and whatnot. And not many of them do what you did. 
Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I, um, my parents who raised me are my stepmom, who's a daughter of the American Revolution, and my father, who uh, is an immigrant from Alexandria, Egypt. And I'd spent a lot of my summers in Alexandria with my grandmother, who never got to go to school, despite being one of the wisest people I've ever met. And she made a habit of reminding me that there was nothing special about me. There was only something special about my opportunity. She'd point out one cousin uh, and be like, you know, that one's smarter than you. Point out to another one, she said, that one is, is better looking than you. Point out to a third one, that was taller than you. And her point was that you owe your opportunities a responsibility. And I think, you know, that, that's one of the best things about being a child of immigrants is that I know exactly what opportunities I had because I saw the contrapositive. And so the crazy thing is that on those trips to Egypt, I would travel about 15 hours and travel about 10 years difference in life expectancy. And I could travel the same 10-year life expectancy gap in 25 minutes if I were to leave my suburban Detroit home and drive to any neighborhood in Detroit. And that always framed why I became a doctor in the first place, the work that I wanted to do. And so when I got the opportunity to come home and rebuild a department that had been shut down when the city went through bankruptcy, you know, for me, that was just, that, that's the responsibility I owed the opportunities that I was given. And so it, it's easy to get too complex about your, your personal calculations, right? Should I do this? Should I do that? But for me, the, the simple litmus test is what would my Tata think, right? What would she say about what I chose to do and whether or not it was worthy of the very unique opportunities that I got? And so that, that's why I did it. I hope that that focus remains always for me, that sense of dignifying your opportunity. Because this is something you talk about quite a bit in, in your work, Andrew, and, and something I really admired about the clarity of your run is that at the end of the day, you, your privilege is always creating privilege somewhere. You're either increasing privilege for people who already have it, or you're providing a modicum for people who don't. And like, that's the choice. So, you know, you, you work up the meritocracy, you, you, get, you get knighted by all these institutions who put their seal of approval on you. And the question you have to ask yourself is, well, is what you're doing yeah, what the fuck was that for? <laughs> exactly. What was the point? Well, well, see, here's the thing. If if I say to someone, hey, Abdul or doctor twice over, Abdul El Sayed goes home to Detroit to run the Department of Health, people say, okay, like that sounds very like important and official. But I know what the reality is, just like you know what the reality is, where you like show up in Detroit, you have this skeleton crew in the back of the parking mm -hmm. office at like the hospital that used to house it is shuttered. Your first task as like the person trying to increase people's life expectancy is to deal with the vagrant dog problem because the freaking dogs are like roaming the streets of Detroit. And I, I spent a lot of time in Detroit. And even I didn't know that one. I was like, what? Like you had a freaking, uh, you know, it's like, there's like the official storybook version. And then there's like the real life version. Right. And I know what the real life version looked like having spent enough time in that city. I was working, I was working probably 110, 120 hour weeks. I got a little studio in downtown and I'd be in the office by eight I'd leave the office by nine or 10 and I would do that six to seven days a week. And like the only time that I wasn't there, I was in New York where I would generally, you know, I'd be with Sarah, but like she was a, she was a resident physician. And so she had weekend hours and, you know, I would need to get out and just keep working because things kept going. It, there were a lot of days where I was like, what are we doing here? Um, th it's just impossible. You're right. Like, you, you know, you walk in. Uh, and you've got five city employees, 85 contractors 
in the back of the building where people go to pay parking tickets in the poorest city in America. And, you know, I had to like wrangle money out of the city using the state by digging into like the state law about what the city should be investing in public health. Yeah, that, that was one of the really impressive things about your story because you show up and you have shit for resources and then you're like, how am I going to get some more resources? And you're like, oh, like I've, I've got it. There's like a freaking statute here that I could use to like, uh, you know, bully some more money. And that's the thing is like, but that's Detroit, right? Like that's the, it is the most resilient, gritty place you'll ever go. And Detroiters just have this like incredible never say die attitude. I don't know if, if, if folks have been watching The Last Dance about the Jordan years with the Bulls, but like, you know, the, the real story of 90s basketball is the Bad Boy Pistons. And the Bad Boy Pistons are like the best example of what Detroit grit is all about. It's like, yeah, you know what? We're probably less talented than you, right? Probably less funded than you, but you know what? We are going to outwork you, out hustle you and beat the shit out of you. And that's how we're going to win. And um, like, that was just, it was, it was this, this, this moment of just saying, all right, so you know, how do we build a team out of the folks who are here? How do we believe in what we can accomplish? And then how do we go out there and be scrappy and make things happen with the focus on protecting our most vulnerable? I, I'll be honest, I, you know, I've done a, a number of th things since, but I don't know that I'll ever be as fulfilled in a job as I was in those moments uh, at the health department, because it was the thrill of doing something unique for people who really, really needed it. And rarely is work that unencumbered morally. Yeah, it'd be so pure. You're literally, it's like, hey, I'm just here to try and uh, make your kid's life longer and healthier. Yeah. Uh, and, and one <clears throat> of the stories I loved in your book is that like, you just sort of show up at people's doorsteps on like Friday afternoons being like, hey, <laughs> like, what's going on? Like, what, what's going wrong in uh, your neighborhood? One of the things that broke my heart was the fact that you identified that demolishing buildings in Detroit actually contributed to an increased risk of lead poisoning for the kids who are near the demolished houses because so Detroit peak population 1.7 million right uh, current population approximately 680,000 that's right something along those lines so the thing is almost two-thirds empty so you look around uh, and the way Detroit's laid out is that it's a fairly large uh, area. It's not like Isle of Manhattan. It's like super densely populated. It's like fairly spread out. It's huge. You could fit all of Boston, Manhattan, and San Francisco and Detroit and still have room left over. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's kind of spread out and it's almost two thirds empty. So you have all these buildings that are derelict, uh, hazardous, blighted. So the fact that they were trying to demolish them I was for. Mm -hmm. The fact that unfortunately the building materials ha had lead paint on them such that if you demolish them, lead dust goes up and uh, probably ends up increasing health risks for people for blocks around, particularly vulnerable kids. I was like, oh, no, I got this, like real sinking feeling. And the fact that you identified that, you know, to me was so profound because I know the people in charge were very excited about demolishing some buildings. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. The demolitions weren't the problem. When you, when you demolish at that scale, it's almost impossible to hold all of the contractors who are actually doing the demolishing accountable. And so, you know, of course, they're going to cut corners and they're going to cheat. And when they do, that means that the lead that was, you know, packed away in the inside of those homes gets out. And, you know, you got a kid playing outside or a kid opening the window and trying to study in their room. That's going to get in their lungs and that has consequences. And unfortunately, when we analyzed it, that's what we found. And so, it was really frustrating, right? Because, you know, this is a high profile program, a program that 
has a lot of money going into it, and no, nobody wants to hear bad news. But this sort of gets to the beginning of the conversation that we had, Andrew, which is in public health, the hard part about public health is that if you're loud and you ring the alarm bells, right, people are like, yeah, this is, this is, it's not a big deal, right? It's going to be just fine. And if you're quiet, then bad things happen. And so you're constantly fighting a losing battle. And here we are in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic that really is the same story. Alex Azar, for all of the things I disagree with him on, right, tried to ring the alarm bells about this pandemic well before it became a global pandemic. And they shouted him down, right? They, they, they shushed him up. And here we are. And so, you know, I know that experience, right? I, I literally got called Cassandra by the higher ups in the office because every time I'd come in, I'd be like, look, I've got bad news for you. And let me tell you how this is going to hurt kids. And they'd be like, oh, well, you know, ah, well. Reading your book, when you talk about the epidemic of insecurity, I could not agree more. And my solution, as you know, as everyone knows, probably listening to this is like, hey, I think we should give everyone money. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, <laughs> think that would that would actually really help um, more quickly and dramatically than just about anything else we could do. And and one thing I love about your experience is like you have like the obviously like the very very high level academic training, but then you also were like on the ground. You were literally not just like near the boots on the ground. You were the boots on mm -hmm. the ground. You know, you just like walk into someone's home and be like, hey, turns out you don't have running water because the city shut it down. Like, well, that's probably not very good for your health. And even your comment about the contractors, like you see how muddy the reality is where, of course, if you assign someone to demolish the house, you'd be like, you know what you should do? Freaking tarp the whole thing. Like, mm -hmm. you know, go through all these precautions. And then in real life, when they're at that house, like, you know, if they're tarp tears, they'll be like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> especially, especially if it's like house like, number number five for the day. Guys just want to go home. Right. And they're like, you know what? Maybe maybe house number five is not gonna be that bad. And you're like, well, there's a kid who lives next door. And it's just as just as important as house number one. Right. Just because it's your fifth house for the day. And so, like, there's a way that human nature gets in the way. And I think the best policymaking is policy that that is able to anticipate and appreciate how human nature works. Um, yes. And addresses that. Yeah, I'm there too, man. Like, it's one of the things like, you and I have so much in common, like, I completely share your passion for the fact that we have an epidemic of insecurity across food, health, community, family, financial stability, you name it at this point, culture, media. I mean, like, we're really in the shitter. Uh, like uh, and many of these things and you're a numbers guy too it's like i see one fun thing about reading your book was like you just busted out like a bunch of measurements that demonstrate the epidemic of insecurity and like all these dimensions and i'm like yeah 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 it's like like I, i'm 100 percent with you and then the question is how the heck do we turn that around and the other thing i share with actually i don't share this with you you're better than me on this is that like you stuck your nose right into the grindstone of like the workings of healthcare institutions, government, like you got in there. And and one of the things you said in your book that really impressed me, because I've thought it, was that like you're a doctor seeing patients and then you're like, this shit's not going to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like they're, you know what I mean? It's like oh. we, we introduce so many people into situations where they're supposed to go in with a certain ambition. We set them up so they're like, you know, a piece of a bigger machine. And on some level, they have to realize it's like, you know, this is not actually aligned with like my original goal set. 
but at this point I'm here, like, you know, like they're, they're paying me to do X. I'm just going to do X. Mm. Well, to be fair, Andrew, I remember um, getting a phone call. I think it was in December of 2018 from uh, a guy named Andrew Yang, who was like, yo, I'm running for president. I was like, you're going to do what? <laughs> He's like, I'm running for president. Uh, and I remember asking you why. And you said, look, I have been working in this nonprofit space, trying to get people to realize the basic truth of the fact that we cannot solve this by tinkering at the edges of, of the policy that, that, that currently exists. And I, I'm running because I believe in this idea of a freedom dividend. So millions of people around our country agree with you. And that's largely because you had the courage to um, step up and make them issues. So grateful to you for that. And I think for the long term, right, even the short term, right, people are getting $1,200 checks. And in some respects, that's an idea that's on the table that was on the table because of your work. So I think change is halting. And sometimes it doesn't end up in people being in the positions to make change. But by putting ideas into the ether and driving a conversation that refocuses where we ought to be focused, I think that makes a big difference. So thank you for doing your part. I really appreciate it. Oh, man, that's so kind of you. I remember that conversation, too. And, and you and I, though, obviously, again, we're having this conversation because we didn't win our respective races. <laughs> but, 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 I, but I do feel like we helped move certain ideas closer to fruition. In your case, there's obviously universal health care, in part because of your background. And then there's a new kind of politics. And this is not the word you use is actually like Cory Booker thing. But like reading your book, I actually thought of it was like more of like a politics of humanity or a politics of love. Uh, it, it's a little bit like how you talked about responding to racism, where it's like if someone comes at you, like they're trying to dehumanize you and you have to try and almost rehumanize yourself to them to the extent that it's possible. And that is what our politics needs. Uh, so I suppose I'm going to just throw it out to you. It's like, what is your universal basic income? <laughs> if there's something where you're like, hey, you know what? Like, uh, if there's uh, if there are a couple of things I'm going to make sure people understand more fully, win or lose, it's going to be this set of ideas. Yeah. So my, my big policy focus has been Medicare for all, just because that's the area in which I work. You know, the next book, I got a book coming out in February on Medicare for All, co-written with a, a friend of mine. How the heck did you write another book when this book just came out like a minute ago, man? That seems crazy. Andrew, you'll see, you'll see uh, the, the world after having lost a campaign is long. There's a lot of time you get to spend just writing stuff. Uh, wow. Wow, Abdul. <laughs> but uh, but um, <laughs> Medicare for All for me is, is just, it's fundamentally critical because it speaks to two issues at the same time. A lot of folks focus on Medicare for All as it's just about getting people health care. It is. It is. Absolutely. But one of the things that this pandemic has shown us is that our for-profit healthcare system is not geared up to be able to provide quality healthcare at scale in the moments when we need it most. And it's not just about providing people healthcare, but it's also about reforming the incentives in the healthcare system so that we're constantly focused on the bottom line of people's well-being. Yes, I love it. I can't wait for you to to explain this more fully. And I know I, I want to read your next book uh, just as bad as <laughs> as this book. So the, the dream to me is that if someone's healthy and doesn't see a healthcare provider in that year, then that's like a huge success. Mm -hmm. That like right right now, unfortunately, the way we're measuring uh, performance is often just in how much revenue gets generated by the hospital, the drug company, et cetera, et cetera. And in, in reality, we should be trying to measure how people are doing. And if the, the company wasn't necessary, then that should somehow actually be rewarding them at a higher level. Mm -hmm. 
And that's that's the thing, right? You're exactly right. It's like sometimes there are goods and services that we should not measure in monetary terms. And a person's health and well-being is exactly that, right? Because like if you're the average individual and you're lucky enough to have been born healthy, right? We want the system to keep you healthy, not just reward providing you healthcare. And unfortunately, that's the system that we have right now. And it has fundamentally failed us in in the middle of this pandemic. I mean, your book's talking about like, it was failing us before this pandemic, Like you don't even need the pandemic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing is like, it's failing us all at once in this pandemic. And this is also why I don't like it when we talk about going back to normal. Me neither. Because normal just wasn't very normal for a lot of folks, right? Yeah. 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 So I am 100% with you on the dysfunction of our current healthcare system, the fact that we spend more than other countries to worse results, the fact that it's highly uneven, the fact that it's incentivizing the wrong behaviors, the fact that we have doctors that are prescribing things for their own institutional self-interest or legal self-protection, and that's not entirely their fault. It's like, you know, we, we have a system that, that's just like, hey, if you get the extra test, like can't be sued. So, you know, go ahead and do it. And then you, you have that, you know, times millions of patients. The thing that I was trying to figure out, even in the midst of my campaign, was how the heck we get from this current kludgy, jacked up, terrible system with the wrong incentives to like a system that would work. And I had some ideas as to how we could move us there, but I would absolutely love to hear your vision as someone who's worked deeply in the system. Yeah. I So any transition of a sector that accounts for 20% of your economy is, is going to be less smooth than you would like. But I will say a couple of things. Number one, I do think that there's an ability to roll it out in time in a way that provides the insurance coverage to those who need it most. So, you know, you start with kids and then from there you grow it to young adults. And then from there you pull it down to those 55 and older. And then from there you just close the gap. But then the other part of this is also you've got a huge insurance infrastructure that exists right now. We know that about 15% of that insurance infrastructure doesn't necessarily add value. So it doesn't. I mean, <laughs> I mean so they, like, it literally removes value. Like it's there. The whole purpose is to like deny people coverage. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, in general, they're they're like a giant tax on us. All. Yeah. So how do you take that and say, well, look, if we were to extend healthcare coverage to the 10% of Americans who are now locked out of the system, there's going to be a whole lot more healthcare jobs that we need. Is there a way for us, as this is happening, right, to be providing a staged, efficient, well-managed, well-compensated transition from the part of the healthcare system that's used to deny people care right now to the part of the healthcare system that actually offers people care when they need it, right? Is there a way for us to like manage that transition? And then for the rest of the infrastructure that exists, is there a way to bake it in? Because there's, you know, folks don't appreciate this, but even Medicare, it runs through a shell of industry that takes very, very, very tiny margins but then still operates through the private industrial health insurance model. So that part of the model doesn't have to go away. It just gets administered differently. And for those jobs that are not going to be necessary in a system that doesn't actively prevent people from getting the payments for the healthcare that they need, is there a way for us to manage so that instead of being in a job where you're denying people healthcare, you're in a job where you're providing it? And I think, you know, there's also a thought of saying, well, what if Medicare for all was also administered parallel at the state level, right? Where you end up having an expansion of state level provided health insurance, where you then have these learnings happening at every state 
that you have CMS centrally potentially taking best practices and acting almost like a consulting arm that empowers local communities to build up their so CMS is your is your Michigan version. Well, right? CMS is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, right? They're the folks who administer Medicare as it is. But in Michigan, right, we have Healthy Michigan is the plan, right? It's the state Medicaid plan. But you can imagine sort of a, a fully empowered, fully resourced, stood up system where you basically have a Michigan level <clears throat> insurance program for everybody, Medicare for all, but laid out in parallel across the state level. Do you think that's preferable, like having uh, state by state? effort towards Medicare for all? So where I think there's some real benefit to that is you end up having, instead of one major rollout that risks going poorly, kind of like healthcare.gov, you have 50 rollouts, right? And, And they're all administered in parallel. And then the federal government basically becomes a resource driver and consulting arm for best practices. The other thing is it allows you for some local control because you do have huge demographic differences across states. Yeah. The danger though, right, is just like you've seen with some of the southern state governments who have been reticent to take the handout of Medicaid expansion. I think most Americans right now realize we need to take a very, very different approach to healthcare than that we've had. So hopefully this pandemic will have at least that silver lining where the consensus towards some kind of universal healthcare plan will grow overwhelming. Because I can't imagine someone in this period of time still being like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, like this current market-based private insurance system is working great. Like I, I just can't imagine someone feeling that way after this pandemic. No, I, I think you're entirely right. I mean, we've, we've watched as the healthcare system has been brought to its knees by this pandemic. And I think Americans realize that um, we've got to do something about it. Well, Abdul, your book, uh, Healing Politics, I got a lot out of it. I think you're an incredible role model uh, and American hero. And I learned a lot from it. Tell us what it is that you're working on, aside from, I'm sure, promoting this book, because I have had a publisher too. And, you know, that publisher like uh, wants to know that you're, <laughs> you're, you're out there. Um, but what are you working on aside from this book tour? Yeah, well, um, got a couple of things going. Uh, I run a political action committee called Southpaw in Michigan. Folks can check it out at southpawmi.com. And we're really gearing up. We sort of run a reverse coattails approach where we're really focused on really, really high quality local candidates. And we know that if folks come out and support local candidates, they'll come out and support candidates at the top of the ticket as well. And then I, uh, I'm doing a bit of teaching. I've got uh, another book I'm, I'm working on. And then, of course, working with you on CNN. And I host a podcast called America Dissected, where we go beyond the headlines on the healthcare issues of the day. But it's a privilege to, to be on with you. I really appreciate it. And it's been fun getting to know each other. Really grateful for your leadership and your run. And I really look forward to what we're going to see you do next. All right. Thank you so much. All the best to the family, man. Stay safe. You too, my best Evelyn and the kids. Okay. Okay. 